So we'll begin this evening with uh, chanting of the refuges and precepts, as is the custom. And those of you who know me know that I, I do love chanting in Pali, and I'm sure I think this was the very first Pali chant I ever learned. But the fact that it is in Pali can sometimes incline us to to not really connect with with what it's about, what the meaning is there. So, um, yeah, just take a few seconds and feel into what it is that we're giving voice to when we do this chant, this um, connection to where we look for refuge, however we hold that, each of us, this orientation around non-harming, and the understanding of the power of this in our lives, in the world. And maybe some connection to um, offering this as a gift, offering the gift of safety to others, bringing goodness forward into the world through this uh, intention. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa. Buddhang saranangachami. Dhammang Saranangga Chami, Sanghang Saranangga Chami, Dutiampi Buddhang Saranangga Chami, Dutiampi Dhammang Saranangga Chami, Dutiampi Sanghang Saranangga Chami, Tatiampi Buddhang Saranangga Chami, Tatiampi Dhammang Saranangga Chami, Tatiampi Sanghang Saranangga Chami, Panati Pata Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami, Adina dana we ramani sikapadang samadhyami. Abrahmacharya we ramani sikapadang samadhyami. Musawada we ramani sikapadang samadhyami. Sura meraya majapamadatana. We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami. We Kala Bhojana. We Ramani Sikapadang Samadhyami. Naja Gita Vadita. We Sukadasana. Malaganda. We Lepana. Dharana. Mandana. We Busanathana. 
ve ramani sika padang samadhyami ujjasayana mahasayana ve ramani sika padang samadhyami idam me silam magapalanya nasa pachayo hotu sadu sadu Sadhu. <clears throat> Probably many of you, maybe most of you, recall that um, there were two of the Buddha's um, followers who were are named and regarded as his, his chief disciples. Um, their Pali names were Sariputta and Mahamogalana. And uh, before they joined the Buddhas, took, took up uh, the life of an alms mendicant under the Buddha and were given these names. Sariputta's name was Upatissa and Mogalana was uh, Kolita. And um, they were they were kind of um, they may have been literally related I'm not sure but they were uh, brothers um, in in the seeking the path and and uh, not always together but they were um, you know really devoted spiritual seekers and there's a story about um, Upatissa who became known as Sariputta and uh, this took place in a in the a city of Rajagaha, which is nowadays is called Rajgir in northern India. And um, there was a follower of the Buddha, a monk, we'll call him, an alms mendicant named Asaji, who I have a particular um, connection to because when I first ordained, I was given the name of Asaji. And he was one of the first five disciples of the Buddha, one of the... Um, um, five ascetics who were practicing when he was practicing austerities. And then when he, he delivered his first sermon, he was one of the ones who who listened and uh, heard his the Buddha's first teaching. And um, Upatissa saw him going on alms round and uh, he was struck by his, his appearance and he went up to him and asked for some teachings and as often happens in these stories, you know, Asaji said, I'm, I'm on alms round, it's not the right time. And he asked him a second time and he said, chill out, Upatissa, I'm on alms round. Probably didn't say chill out, but something words to that effect <laughs> in Pali. And anyway, um, Upatissa asked him a third time. And generally speaking, if you ask three times, you often get an answer in these stories. And so... Um, Asaji said to him, you know, you really should just, you should go find the Buddha and get teachings from him. And he said, no, just tell me a little something. What is his doctrine? What is his teaching? And Asaji said these words in Pali, ye dhamma etupabhava te sang etum tathagato aha te sanchayo nirodo ewang wadi mahasamano. So that's what he that was the teaching he gave him. One one line there. Which translates something like this. The Tathagata, which was the 
the Buddha's referred to himself as the Tathagata, the one thus gone, has declared the cause and also the cessation of all phenomena which arise from a cause. This is the doctrine held by the great Samana. A Samana is a, a seeker. So he, he gave him this really short teaching on causation. The great, the Tathagata has declared the cause and the cessation of all phenomena which arise from a cause. Anything that's of the nature to arise um, also ceases. And it's said that I think when he was halfway through that, uh, Upatissa realized the first stage of enlightenment, realized during entry halfway through <laughs> this utterance. So it was uh, quite powerful for him. And there's a very charming um, postscript to this story. Um, that has to do with the fact that um, at at some time there was a monk who was a was and there was a place where a bunch of them were gathered and practicing and and he saw Sariputta. This was af- after he did seek out the Buddha and got teachings and became an arahant, a fully enlightened being. At, after some time, and um, someone saw him in the morning bowing in a in in a particular direction. And he went to the Buddha and said, Sariputta's, um, you know, he's, he's doing, he's behaving badly. He's, he's doing some kind of weird ritual and he shouldn't be doing this. And the, and the story was that Sariputta would bow in the direction if he knew where Asaji was, was staying or where he was at that time. He would bow in his direction. And it said that he also slept with his head in, in the direction uh, where Asaji might be in, in uh, respect and honoring of his first teacher and the one who had shown him, um, led him to the path. And, uh, and the Buddha said, you know, that's okay. <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> so that teaching on, on cause and effect was really powerful for Upatissa at that time, clearly. And it, it really takes us to the heart of, of the Buddha's teachings um, just simply because of this, that arises. When this ceases, that ceases. This simple teaching on the conditioned nature of, of all experience. And if we explore this and start to um, you know, really look into what it's pointing to, it takes us um, to a direct and practical understanding of the teachings of anatta, of not-self. And it's also key to understanding the Buddha's teachings on uh, kamma or karma. Kamma is Pali, karma is Sanskrit, in the same way that dhamma is Pali, dharma is Sanskrit. And um, that, that's, what, that's what the teachings on karma are about, cause and effect. And uh, their teachings on karma are found throughout the discourses in different places and understanding of it is seen as an aspect of right view that one if one has right view one understands the teachings of karma and how this functions um, it's not talked about that often I think because there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding maybe and the potential for that is maybe felt and you know maybe the fact that the word karma has come into our common usage you know it's interesting these things that get get brought into usage and you know um, 
part of maybe not our everyday speech, but they're they're out there. You know, you, you talk about karma, and people have heard that word, if nothing else. It's out there, and there's you know references. There's song, instant karma is going to get you, and you know bumper stickers. My karma ran over your dogma, um, and you know <laughs> things like this. References to how oh, must just be bad karma, my bad karma, and. And uh, there's some connection maybe to what it's about, but it tends to reinforce both a superficial view of it and uh, an oversimplification and often um, often actually leads to more suffering than anything else uh, when this when it's held in, in a in a way that is not really understanding what's going on. And the subject of karma is also related to um, the subject of rebirth, which is throughout the suttas, and that's another topic that leads to all kinds of questions and confusion in people's minds and direct, ties directly into the subject of anatta, of not-self. And questions come up, do I have to believe in rebirth? Is that somehow required? Or if there's no self, who's reborn, what's reborn? Or um, if there's no self who experiences the fruits of past actions. You know, what? how do I reconcile this? Um, and sometimes there's, there's kind of a blaming quality to questions. You know, is the suffering that I or someone else experiences the result of something that we, we did? We did something wrong and we're to blame as though, um, you know, function, karma is something like this, this energy or force that emerges out of the past that we're somehow responsible for and powerless to do anything about, but it's going to get us somehow. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not useful to think about it in these ways. And I think we need to be really careful that we don't use reflections on teachings on karma as as some oversimplified way to account for our present circumstances, just to chalk it all up. It's just my karma, the way that that sometimes happens as though it is, um, can be used to address issues like illness or poverty or social injustice as though, you know, if someone is in unfortunate circumstances, it's somehow their fault. That's, that's the vibe that gets attached there. And it's really um, simplistic and misguided and, only adds to suffering in the world. And I don't think that the Buddha ever intended it to be used like that. But it is useful and powerful if it functions as an aid to help bring clarity to how we live in the present moment, to inform our actions and decisions we make in response to life in each moment. And here it serves as a kind of focal point for uh, choices we make in response to what's happening right now. That can be a useful um, application of of, uh, reflections on karma, I think. And so when we explore this topic, it's really um, essential, I think, to bear in mind that the functioning of law of cause and effect in our lives in the world is vast and complex. You know, you, we're we're living in, we're swimming in a vast ocean of cause 
and effect, a causal ocean, you could say. And it's there are these threads that make that up. We can think of them as as ripples. And, and an image that I think is really great is if you imagine, take a moment now, kind of imagine a, a pond or a lake, and it's it's a totally calm, clear day. So it's it's acting like a mirror. It's just smooth and flat and mirror-like. And you toss a pebble into it. And there are these ripples that go out across the pond. And then you toss another one in. And their second set of ripples. And they can hit the first set of ripples. And new ones bounce off of that. And pebbles get keep tossing in. And pretty soon, there's a very complex... Um, interaction of all these different ripples, really, really complicated. And it's as though since the beginning of beginningless time, pebbles have been getting tossed into a pond like that. And those ripples are extremely complicated. And, and our actions <laughs> are, are one of those things, but there's all kinds of stuff that happens And so to account for this present moment right now as it has come to be, right this moment right now, to account for that, we would have to somehow tease apart all the threads of all the ripples that have happened since the beginning of beginningless time. And um, it's not possible. And I think the Buddha may have warned to try to do that would cause one's head to explode into seven pieces. So um, not recommended, and I don't want to be hearing these explosions here in the hall from our heads um, coming apart there. But the Buddha chose to focus on the area of intention in looking at this causal flow. And I spoke a little bit about uh, intention yesterday morning and brought in the word chetana, which um, is we translate as intention, and talked about it as this energetic impulse to do, just like um, kind of like electricity, this mental factor that gives rise to actions of body, speech, and mind. And this leads to the literal meaning of the word kama or karma, which is action. So it gets, even the word karma gets used to mean what is actually kamma vipaka, which is the fruits of actions. But karma itself is just action. It's just something that one does. And the essential understanding here is that all actions have their origin in the mind, right? They, the mind gives rise. Actions don't just happen. They begin in the mind. And the Buddha stressed this in terms of karma when he said, intention, I tell you, is kamma. Intending one does kamma. One acts by way of body, speech, and mind. So through intention, action happens. So this mental factor of 
it gets a little technical here, but it's actually really useful because we can start to see this in our own direct experience. This mental factor of chetana, of intention, is is neutral. It is just like, I, to me, the image of electricity kind of works. It's like it, it powers, <laughs> gets things going. It's like a little... Um, Joseph says it's like about to... It's our experience of it. We're about to do something. And that can be accompanied by or colored by or um, arise out of a host of other mental factors which may be wholesome or unwholesome. So I'm going to use talk about those as motivational energies, motivations. So the an intention may be constellated with wholesome things like generosity or... Um, kindness or with delusion or uh, greed. So the, the chaitanya is neutral, but it's flavored by these other uh, qualities that may be there. And so um, this points to the fact that the, what we could call the karmic weight of an action is not, not within the action because the same action could arise from very different motivations. So for example, there could be, um, let's see, think of an example. Um, someone takes, you know, an ax and, and uses it to chop and chop at it and break down a door to enter a building. And in one case, it could be someone who is, um, you know, going into some place to, to rob it, <laughs> to steal it. Or in another place, it could be someone who's, who's maybe breaking down a door to, to save someone who's in a, in a burning building, a burning a building that's on fire. And the, the, that action of hitting it with the axe could be exactly the same, but the motivation behind it is completely different. One is wholesome, one is unwholesome. And, and when we look around the world... And we see how much suffering that is, there is, which these days, it seems like there's more than ever. <laughs> you all are, you know, in a nice, uh, maybe hopefully you're not looking at the news. But the world has continued to go on and there's a lot of confusion and, out there and a lot of suffering and a lot of it is avoidable. And if we look at what's going on there, all of these situations have their origin in the mind and in mind states. They don't just happen. And unwholesome mind states giving rise to actions lead lead to suffering. You know, we just see this over and over. And if we look in our own minds and heart, we will see the seeds of war right there in moments. You know, that's where wars, wars start in the mind of a, of a being. <laughs> One being who's having a bad morning could start a war. And this is, they, that's, <laughs> that's where they start. So this is um, powerful, you know. And the Buddha spoke about this, the very first lines in the Dhammapada, different translations, this is one. All experiences preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, 
speak or act with an impure mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind and happiness follows like one's never departing shadow. And so for our own happiness and for happiness in the world and understanding of this, how this functions is, is um, powerful, impacts our own minds and hearts, impacts the world in a profound way. And so it, it steers us towards this situation where we can take personal responsibility for the energies we choose to follow with mindfulness, we can actually see what's going on. What is, what is the motivation that's giving rise to our actions? What is um, informing these, the intention to do something? And then we have a choice. And we don't have to be acting out of um, unwholesome energies that lead to suffering. I was once giving a uh, a version of this talk so a few years ago, and I I asked a friend um, about it who had listened, and they said, "Well, it's not bad, but you should jazz it up a little bit." And so I uh, I came up with an acronym for karma: kind actions really matter a lot. And I actually told that, I mentioned it at one retreat. I think it was one of the three-month retreats and someone who was there actually had some T-shirts made up with, with that on it. He sent me one. <laughs> told him, I, I think I told him, you know, because I thought, okay, this is brilliant. Somebody should, you know, it's going to make some money off this. <laughs> they told him, you know, I gave it out and said, I, I get 10% of whatever you make if you if you run with this one. <laughs> Now, there are things that happen as a result of, of actions on our part that, um, that aren't born of wholesome, unwholesome motivations, but do lead to harm. So that can happen. So, um, so here's an example. We're going for a walk, and um, you know it's kind of a breezy day, and, and we step on uh, some leaves that have been blown across the, the path where we're walking or the, the road, and... Um, and there's a caterpillar that's been covered over by the leaves, and we don't see it there. And and because we're big and it's little, and we we step on the leaves, and it's and our uh, and we kill it. We accidentally kill it. And so so through no intention, we had no intention to harm that being, but it but it happened because things like that do happen. So um, there's there's not a karmic weight to that. It was accidents happen. There are such things as accidents in the world. We didn't see it. But there, there is this causal flow, this flow of cause and effect. So somebody is walking behind you. Um, after you've gone down a little ways, you know, the, the breezy day, the leaves blow away. They see the caterpillar. They, they just, you know, they're stepping and they jump aside to avoid stepping on it. They don't realize that it's already been crushed and they... They fall and injure their leg and cry out in pain and you rush to their rescue and help them get to the hospital and on the way you make a connection and you fall in love and decide on the way back that you'll buy a lottery ticket and it's the winning ticket and and you live happily ever after. And 
And so the, the caterpillar's demise is part of that causal chain, you know. Um, so, so, you know, things flow, can flow on like that. Uh, these kinds of, um, you know, this, this sense that, you know, one thing leading to another and these kinds of flows through time. But I think one reason that the Buddha focused on actions arising out of intention is because it's um, really powerful and, and actually empowering and liberating for us if we relate to it in, in, a, in a useful way. Because we are encouraged to look at and take responsibility for the uh, chain of cause and effect that arises out of our intentional actions. And so we can add something into this process there and make choices that directly impact our life and have an effect on our happiness and effect on our, our um, progress and path to awakening along this uh, path we're walking. And we can think about it and as, in terms of seeds, which is an image I like to use a lot. So one seed can bring about, you know, one acorn can, will bring about an, a huge oak tree with thousands of acorns, each one of them with the potential to bring about more and more trees. So one seed yielding um, on, over time an immense number of fruits from a single seed. And, um, and the same with our intentional actions. They, they can flow on in ways that we, we can't begin to fathom in the moment. But there's this understanding that actions born of wholesome motivations, born of wisdom, kindness, love, generosity. They yield beneficial results, just like an acorn yields an oak tree. (laughs) And one's born of unwholesome, unskillful motivations bring suffering, stress, and, uh, you know, trouble, problems. Now, it's a complicated process, like all those ripples in the pond. We don't want to oversimplify it. It's not that there's some, if I do this, I'll get that result. It's too complicated. It's not one-to-one. And it doesn't mean that if we're careful and we never do anything that isn't born of a wholesome intention, wholesome motivation, that nothing bad will ever happen. This, this is a vast and complicated network of threads here. And actions and the fruits of them are one of many factors. And it's not closed or mechanistic in any way. And whatever actions we do at any point directly influence uh, the way things unfold going forward. So just as a lot of things, factors can influence you know, what happens with a seed, you know, where it, where it lands or where it was planted and if it gets watered and um, all kinds of nutrients and all the things that can impact how that seed flowers forth. That's the same thing here. And, and in this teaching and this understanding, there's the, there is the understanding that, that goodness, actions born of wholesome motivations in the present moment draw out the uh, fruits of past wholesome actions and, um, 
and you know everything is is it's very dynamic process so wholesome actions skillful actions we do now have an effect on the whole process um so it's just good to remember that it's very complicated and that goodness in the present brings forward goodness from the past and it also has an effect on on the fruits of, of past unwholesome actions. It's said that that our that kamma is our only and true property. It's the only thing we really own in life. And uh, these are some words from Sayada Upandita. Our concepts of ownership and control over material objects are basically illusory, for all matter is impermanent and subject to decay. Kama is our only reliable possession in the world. Kama has an immediate effect upon the mind, causing joy or misery, depending on whether it is wholesome or unwholesome. It also has long-term consequences. Seeing life in this way gives us the power to choose the conditions under which we want to live. Thus, the view of kamma as our true reliable property is called the light of the world. For by it, we can see and evaluate the nature of our choices. Right understanding of kamma is like a railroad junction where the train can choose its direction. I like that image of a train pulling in and saying, I want to go that way. A junction where there's tracks going off in many directions. So we can choose the kinds of seeds we want to plant. We can choose to plant the seeds of future happiness or future suffering. So that's really up to us. And mindfulness gives us the chance to see what's going on and make wise choices in this regard. So it's really... um, you know, it's a, such a gift in our lives, mindfulness. This ability to actually see what's going on. So, as I said earlier, if we start to explore this, it leads us into an exploration of, of the subject of rebirth, which is talked about throughout the suttas. And... Um, and also, I think, can lead us to a practical relationship with um, the teachings on, on natav, not-self, which are very, um, you know, it's probably the most radical and most liberating teaching of the Buddha. But the idea of rebirth, that might, might not be meaningful to, to you. I don't know. For some people, it brings up the very idea, those words, a lot of resistance to that. Don't, don't believe in it. Doesn't make sense or something. But we don't have to believe in it to understand the workings of karma because we can see how it happens um, moment by moment. We can see what happens when actions are born of wholesome or un- unwholesome mind states. We see one leads to happiness and one leads to suffering. We can see that in in each moment arising. In, an, in a real way, every mind moment is a new birth, life and death, over and over. How many births have you had today? 
heaven realms and hell realms, possibly. There's an image that I like that I think can be a useful way to illustrate how how um, how this this happens this this sense of flow that that for me illustrates is useful for getting a sense of of rebirth and and what does that mean you know who who's reborn you know how does that fit with the idea of no self or not self you know if there's rebirth then there must be something that gets reborn right at least it seems maybe that at least when we first encounter this, it seems like that. But let's say that we have a line, infinitely long line of, of candles. And the first one is lit and burning. And then it is, t- it is taken and lights the next one and then it goes out. And then that one lights the next one and it goes out. So it's a series of candles, a flame, the flame getting transferred along and the previous one. So that's each mind moment. New candle flame, new candle flame. Now, what happens there is not that we take the flame from one candle and put it onto the next candle. We didn't take that flame off of there. But the conditions for a new flame to arise were created with each one of those. This makes sense? Somebody, one person, give me a nod. Okay. <laughs> so so it's, it's not the same flame, <clears throat> but it looks a lot like those previous flames, right? Flames have a lot of common characteristics, one flame to another. And so we can see each mind moment in the same way. So there's a lawfulness to it we if we take a f- if we move a flame near another place where there's wax and a wick and you know the stuff there then the conditions for a new flame to arise you know that's a lawful process it's not just well maybe there'll be a flame it it it's going to bring one <laughs> you know every everything's there for that a candle it's one that's lit new candle waiting so it's it's not a random thing but it's not the same flame. And we can see this in terms of rebirth. When we think who or what is reborn, we need to be careful that we aren't, this is a process, not a thing. we, We have to be careful that we don't turn what's essentially a process into a thing. So this, the candle flame, it's not the same flame getting picked up and taken over there, but there is this conditioning effect. It conditions the next moment and the arising of the subsequent one. And each mind moment has that effect. So um, that's, that's, you could say that actions in this life condition the next life in the same way that this present moment conditions the next one, conditions the next one, conditions the next one. And that process is happening way faster than we can even begin to imagine. So there is a quality of continuity from one moment to the next. There is a connection between current actions and future births, even in the sense of taking birth into each moment. 
but there's no thing that has passed along. There's no one who is reborn. So it doesn't matter if we see this from one mind moment to the next, within one lifetime or within uh, countless lifetimes. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. Someone once asked um, the teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche um, this question, who, who, what is reborn, who is reborn? And he said, it's your neur- neuroses are what's reborn. <laughs> but this, this feeling, this feeling of continuity, this sense of flow in this way is, is what in great part, I think, gives, gives um, you know, sustains the feeling of a self, you know, because there is this continuity and it happening so quickly, we don't see it arising and passing. And so it feels like, like a me, <laughs> feels like a self. So this, this then takes us towards this subject, which has been woven through the talk, but specifically of uh, anatta, not self. And so if we're going to start exploring that in terms of what I've been talking about so far, hopefully there's some connection here. We need to really look at what our experience of self is, and we need to look at it on kind of what we might say the relative or conventional level and the um, absolute or ultimate levels of reality. So I kind of have to look at it in a couple of ways. So in the relational sense of our everyday um, conventional reality of our interactions in the world, it doesn't really make sense to say there's no self. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm, I have my eyes open and I see a bunch of selves out there. You know, I don't just see form and color and shape. I see individual beings and I'm one of those up here. And on, on this level, there's, there's kind of an obvious self <laughs> and it's even useful at times. But if, so, you know, go ahead and, you know, let's have a good, let's have a self, but let's have a really good one. Let's have a, the best one we can on this level so that we can live in the world with as much integrity and grace and beauty as possible and bring goodness forward into the world, which, I mean, God knows we need all we can get these days especially. And so with mindfulness, we can see what's going on. As I've been talking about, we see the motivations that are associated with um, the intentions to act. We see into our inner world. We have the possibility to actually see what is going on here. Mindfulness changes everything. With mindfulness, everything is possible. Without it, we're just going to be running on, just playing, acting out our conditioning over and over. This is the rolling on of samsara. But with mindfulness, we, there's a chance that we won't, at least some of the time, be just acting out our habituated patterns of reactivity. And so then we can see things in terms of suffering and non-suffering. 
seeing what leads to suffering, what leads to peace and happiness, what leads to freedom from suffering. And then we can choose what we want to be driving the bus of our mind and heart. (laughs) And maybe we don't always, you know, get it somewhere along the line. You know, maybe we don't catch it before, but at some point in there, we'll see what's going on and we can, we're never, it's never too late to come to a place of clear seeing. So we can see these, see these patterns entrenched and deeply habituated patterns of reactivity. And so this opens up the possibility that more and more of the time our actions can arise from clarity, wisdom, compassion, love, all those good things. And then it goes back to the Buddha's lines in the Dhammapada. Then we can speak and act with a peaceful mind and happiness will follow like one's never departing shadow. Now that doesn't mean that we will never have any pain or sorrow in our lives, but we still can steer our lives in this direction of of happiness, away from suffering. And then in meditation, using the tool of meditation, we can start to... um, open up to and connect to a, a, a level of what we what is often called absolute or ultimate reality. And here then our direct experience um, reveals something really different. So for example, in meditation, we really connect to the truth of impermanence in a profound and um, you know radical way. And we start to see as our as our mindfulness gets more um, continuous and more refined and subtle, we start to see change on on what we might say is almost a microscopic kind of level. There are moments when our perception is tuned in such a way that we see the rapidity of change. Um, and, And just, you know, then our whole relationship to self and like, let's just say to this body, You know, when we look in the mirror, I look out, you know, I see arms and heads and hands and feet and things. And and those are real and useful. Hands are good for picking things up and feeding ourselves and all the rest. But in meditation, what is our direct experience of the body? We don't experience hand or arm or head or leg. Those are concepts, useful ones. But below those concepts... What is the experience of body right now? Feel it. My experience is of coolness and vibration, movement, pressure, heaviness, whatever. Constant flow of change, this dance of the elements, you could say. And there's nothing, there's nothing permanent in any of that. And there may be times, I know many of us have experienced times in meditation where the concept of body disappears entirely. And it's just this flow of changing sensations arising and passing. And, you know, there's, 
there's no sense of of edges or shape or form. It's just just that flow. And there may be times when it's just all we're seeing is just this almost vibratory level of change. And meditation also reveals the insubstantial fleeting nature of mental activity and thoughts and all the mental images, all that goes on in the mind. You know, we, we have this chance, which is unbelievably powerful, to see thought or thinking as just a discrete phenomena, phenomenon, pardon me, apart from the content. You know, what is it? There's nothing there. There are just these pulses of energy. They're so light and, and insubstantial and fleeting, but they also create whole worlds that we inhabit for periods of time. <laughs> You know, and then a story or drama, and then and then it falls away, and it's just gone. And it was so real, and that was our whole world for a time. And, and then it's just there, and there's nothing, nothing remaining. <laughs> Maybe a little flavor of it, or some residual thing, but that's changing all the time too. And so, if we see change on this level, we naturally encounter. Um, the truth of dukkha in that none of that is is lasts long enough to latch on to it as a source of, of um, lasting happiness or satisfaction. You know, even the most sublime experience doesn't last long enough to to hold on to for a source of our our well being or, or lasting happiness or satisfaction. It just can't do that. It's just subject to change. And if we examine our experience in terms of self on this level, it's hard to find one. You know, it's it's coreless. It's it's so impersonal. It's just this flux of arising and passing phenomena, objects, contact and knowing, object and knowing, arising, arising, passing, arising, remaining, passing. We're not in charge of it. We can't have it be the way we, only the way we want it to be. We can't say, let me have only pleasant sensations in the body, only peaceful mind states, only really sweet thoughts or, or no thoughts at all. We're not in control. And we see that something that seemed like a solid self is just this flux of change happening by itself. There's no one behind it controlling it and there's no one that it's happening to. And if we see, and this is our direct experience, this isn't just like an idea that we're trying to convince ourselves of. We see this directly. And seeing in this way releases our, loosens our tendency to identify with it and hold grasp onto it as I, as me, as mine. We see it's just natural processes, something that's happening by itself. And so then, on this level, the concept of self, it doesn't make any sense. There's there's nowhere to put it in there <laughs> except as a, 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 an arising in a moment, a 
feeling. You know, we see that it's identification with some clinging to our identification with some aspect of our experience that gives rise to the feeling of a self. That that's what it is. It's a feeling that arises in in relation to how we're how we're relating to what's going on. So it's very cool. Then <laughs> we see, okay, it's just this it's another impermanent arising. And it can be interesting, fun, you know, go through the day and notice there's times when you know the feeling of, of self is really strong. And there's times when it's really light or maybe it's not there at all. Have you noticed this? I remember one time here at the Forest Refuge, I've mentioned this to a few of you, and you know, every time I'd go at mealtime into the dining room, boy, there was, Greg was really there. And it was like this, it was like this kind of embarrassed to exist. <laughs> that I just it was really fun. It was interesting to watch. I mean, it was really interesting to see, you know, it's like I'd, I'd be walking down the hall and like, I, you know, is it going to happen again today? It's just like, oh, wow. And there were other times when that feeling was not there at all. Just not there. Well, what does that mean? So we see, oh, it's just an impermanent rising, a feeling born of how we're relating to our experience in the moment. And so as we start to see this directly for ourselves in our ongoing momentary experience over and over, not through some attempt to persuade ourselves of seeing things in a way, but just from seeing reality, seeing the way it is, it inclines the mind and the heart to let go, to release. Because we see it's a rising and passing whether we try to grab onto it or not. So let's just stop doing it. It's like a fist that we've been making that we stop squeezing. Right? It's just, it's relaxing. It's easeful. We give it back to nature. And this feeling of non-attachment, letting go and ease is, arises as a result. It's, it's part of the causal flow. When this ceases, that ceases. When grasping, clinging, identification cease, peace follows, release follows, ease follows. And this doesn't mean that we lose our ability to function on the, on the relative level. Actually, the opposite is true because we actually are able to... Um, we're not just acting out our conditioning, we're able to actually be responsive in life. And um, we're not just running on and helping to turn the wheel of samsara. We can step off of that in moments and eventually completely off of it. And then wisdom and compassion, they can arise, they're free to function. We can release the anxiety of having to protect our fragile sense of self which is so painful and such a big project. We can notice a a growing confidence, a sense that we, it's like, you know, having a a real relationship to 
um, the ref, three refuges, where we find a place of refuge, a confidence and a sense of refuge that is always available, regardless of life's ups and downs and the changes that are going to come. You know, good day, I'm okay. Bad day, I'm okay. Because we're we're not our, our place of refuge, our place of security is is not dependent on external conditions being any particular way. That's a that's a powerful refuge, isn't it? We don't ask those external conditions to provide something they're not capable of. They can't provide us with refuge. They can't provide us with a source of lasting happiness. There's not bad or wrong, but we're, we're, we've been asking them to do something they can't do. But we find it in our own mind and heart. And then it goes with us anywhere, and it's there whether things, no matter how, what the conditions are. And so this, all of this steers us in the direction of the highest possible happiness and the freedom and peace of a fully liberated mind and heart where all grasping, clinging identification has fallen away. And then these, the wholesome, wholesome qualities, they're just there. We don't have to get them. If we get everything out of the way, they're just there. That's what we find. Then we find loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, appreciative joy, equanimity. Those are our responses to life on the relative level because nothing else makes any sense. So thank you for listening tonight. I'm going to stop here. And we'll be quiet for just a minute, and then we'll uh, chant the uh, verses of uh, sharing the blessings, as we call it here, in just a moment. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration. Through the goodness that arises from my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world. May the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, May all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. 
through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing, may all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. So thank you for your kind attention this evening. If there was anything useful in uh, this reflection, please take it. If there wasn't, let it all go. Let it all go either way. And, uh, thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.